If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter in the Gospel of Mark, page 712 in the Church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 45 to the end of the chapter. And just want to welcome everybody here. I'm so glad to see you on this Lord's Day. And um, just anticipate good things as we've already enjoyed. Okay, verse 45, chapter 6. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Amen. God, bless the reading of his word this morning and grant us understanding of it. Let's pray, please. So many times my heart has strayed from your kind and perfect ways, making clear my desperate need for your blood poured out for me. Father, we do pray for your help now as we turn to the scripture together that our minds will think clearly, our wills constrained and directed by your spirit to your truth, and that we all would be revolutionized as a result of hearing from you as the Bible is taught. God, you know that everything needed in this moment depends entirely upon you. So we ask for Jesus' sake that you would show us your glory this morning. Amen. Well, I need to confess something to you. We, we just took down our Christmas tree this weekend. Okay? It, was a bit, it was sad because um, we enjoy the Christmas season as m- many of you do. It was messy because we, we left the thing up way too long. But, you know, Christmas comes and goes so fast for us. We, we like to start as early as we can as a family, and I like to stretch it out as long as I'm allowed. So... One of the things that we do is we do our Christmas stuff a lot earlier than probably most. And one of the things that I do is the week before Thanksgiving, I just start breaking out all my Christmas reading. So I read the gospel accounts of the Christmas story. I reread books I own or try to find new books about the Christmas story and and its meaning and the history of Christmas. And frankly, I'll read anything that has the title Christmas in it, to be honest with you. And one of the things I do is I search newspapers and online articles and publications and such 
to find literally anything written by anybody. I don't care who it is. I just want to know what people are saying about Christmas. So shopping trends, music trends, how different cities celebrate Christmas, how people, and especially celebrities, I don't know why, but I'm curious always how celebrities celebrate Christmas or don't celebrate Christmas, but it's all helpful to me. And this year that proved true because I ran across an article in the online publication, The Spectator, December 16th. It was written by Carola Binney, and she was describing what is happening to Christmas in China. And I want you to be mindful, The Spectator is not a Christian publication. So the article said that when Communist Chinese Party allowed Christmas into their country, they did it purely for economic and commercial aspects. That's just one more way to promote economic growth in the country. So essentially what they said is they, they saw what was happening here in America and they said, we want some of that. And now, for example, Christmas Eve is the largest shopping day of the year in China. And remember, the, the public celebration of Christmas has been an offense there since 1949. However, they begin to let it in, commercial reasons. And this is what Miss Benny writes. They're worried now that too many people are genuinely celebrating the birth of Christ at Christmas. Now and again, you hear vicars, and she's writing from England, but pastors in England complain about the commercialization of Christmas and how it, this subverts its fundamental message. The Communist Party agrees, but has the opposite concern. Much as it tries to stress the commercial aspects, the Bible's version of events is growing ever more popular. Now, I hope you're tracking with her. She says, pastors in the West, you know, we fight uh, the commercialization of Christmas. In China, the Communist Party, who loosened up its reign and brought in Christmas purely for economic reasons, they can't put a halt to the growing Christianization of Christmas. So, you know, growing commercialization, commercialization here, a growing Christianization there. And she's writing with a bent. They let it in, right? She wasn't saying anything about evangelism. It essentially, it was that people are asking questions about this Christ of Christmas. Now, think through that because that is beautiful and that is so much like God. What they mean for evil, he means for good. Right, if God can use wicked men to put his son on the cross to save the world, God can use the Communist Party, who right now care nothing for Jesus Christ, to get people to Christ. Verse 50, do you see it there in the latter part? Take courage. It's me, it's I. Now, one of the things we need to take from this is that all they did was push a baby in a manger with other things, right? It was the, the, the theater of Christmas. Cute baby, Santa, Mrs. Claus, some elves, wise men, bright star. And they were like, that's not going to do anything because we don't think it's going to do anything. Sure, we, our economy will get a boost. People will be happy. Uh, we'll stay in power, but that's it. No, that is not it. Because you'd want to tell them this. You may have put Jesus in a bag, you know, with reindeer and elves, but it's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. A long time ago, we used to sing the song when I was a kid. Jesus, your name is power. Jesus, your name is might. Jesus, your name will break every stronghold. Jesus, your name is life. And you see, what I'd like us to take away from this introduction is exactly, exactly what Mark has been doing here in this gospel. He is simply telling us the true historical story of Jesus, Chapter by chapter, the words and deeds of Jesus. And loved ones, if you do not keep that before you, as you move along in Mark, 
Since we are all so prone to wonder, even when we read our Bibles, we may very well wonder. You see, we may get some benefit from the Bible looking for things, you know, to help us be better and do better. Of course, it's the Bible. But it will become so possible to miss what is primary, what is needed, to miss what is the actual intent of Mark's gospel, thus the intent of God the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the gospel. And we lose that intent having taken our eyes off Jesus. And so what I want to try to reinforce this by, is by reminding you, first of all, that we're studying a gospel. We are studying good news, right? Good news about Jesus. And this good news is the, is the record of the story of Jesus. So Mark tells us, chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, Mark says, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was expected and predicted in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And all through this gospel, Mark writes how Jesus preached the good news to people. And Jesus heals people. Jesus helps people. Jesus confronts self-righteous religious leaders to protect people. Jesus controls nature. Jesus has incredible compassion. Jesus listens to the Father. Jesus picks a team to tell a story to the world because the Father loves the world. Good news. Good news. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And loved ones, think of that in relationship to like personal evangelism because nothing will zip our lips or tie our tongues more than the loss of confidence in Jesus, in his truth, in his relevance, and in his power, and the power of the gospel. Think about China. They brought Jesus in a bag with other stuff. They weren't worried at all. They should have been. But now look. You see, if we are prone to wonder in relationship to the gospel itself, what we're going to do is we're going to discover a gap between what we believe and how we behave and what we think about ourselves and what we think about others and what we say to others if we say anything at all to them about Jesus. Or even think of it in terms of personal assurance. And so our deeds are no longer rooted in faith and love, but fear, or pride, or superstition, or competition. So what Mark is doing here is showing us Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He who was predicted in the Old Testament, he is being presented now in the New. And we have to keep this always before us when we come to a story uh, in the feeding of the 5,000, as Jim did last week, and here now of Jesus walking on the water. Story many of us heard before. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're like, okay, Jesus walked on the water. Great. What does it mean? Loved ones, the reason why Mark is recording for us all these happenings is, is in order that we might get the full, complete picture of the identity of Jesus Christ. You, know, you go online and you buy shoes or shirts or cars and they do that 360 thing where you can see the shoe or whatever it is from every angle. That's what Mark is doing. Because remember that people have been asking in chapter 4, who is Jesus And that question has kind of been hanging in the air with the people. It's been hanging in the air with the disciples. It's been hanging in the air or was hanging in the air for the people who first read this gospel. And of course, it's been hanging in the air ever since. Who is Jesus? Is he really the son of God? Is he really the only savior of the world? Really worship Jesus week by week? Really? Is it really good news? And Mark helps us understand the answer to that question correctly. So for example... You're here and you're like, you know what? The TV preacher said Jesus would fix everything. If I had faith and gave him a little money, he'd fix everything. I did it. Everything isn't fixed. What's going on? Or first century Christian reading the Gospels. That question is their head and they are taking a beat down. 
because they love Jesus. Is he real? Is he worth it? Am I on the right path? Mark's gospel answer is yes and yes and yes. So you see, if you come to this story leading with yourself, because we're so me-oriented, our whole bent will be, okay, where am I in this story? Trying to let his story be defined or even altered by our story. But if you do that, you flip the gospel and you lose its true intent. Therefore, what Mark is doing is introducing us to Jesus, who is the king of history and who's the only one who, who in his death can reconcile people to God. Because Jesus orders our history and order that, and listen carefully, our lives may be defined in relationship to him, right? Our lives being defined only in relationship to him. That's the good news, right? I do not, I do no longer have to relate my to God through my performance. That's done. Jesus put an end to that. So it's about him now, him who can feed 5,000, him who walks on water, him who controls the elements, he who is the God incarnate. In other words, the whole thing's about Jesus Christ. And once we discover who Jesus is, and then we discover who we are in light of what Jesus says about us, then we make this delightful discovery of our lives being defined in relationship to him. Right? Our lives being defined, not this way, but but this way. Contrast all that with a sermon like, you know, the disciples were in a dreadful mess. And some of you are too. Well, you're in luck. You know, here's a few tips from the text to get you out of the mess. Don't you like how that sounds? Here's a few tips from the text to get you out of the mess. And it all may be true. But it's not what Mark is doing. I mean, you do know the disciples are in the boat and they're in the mess. Because Jesus said, get in the boat. Loved ones, history, our personal history, our world history cannot be understood proper without Jesus and the Bible explaining it to us. And the Bible makes this compelling argument that we are deeply flawed. That there is a fundamental flaw in people. We're broken, our lives are broken, our nation is broken, families are broken. And the Bible says, this is why we are broken. And therefore, when we read the Gospels, good news Good news, we read the real account of the one who has come to deal with the fundamental flaw of history, global history, personal. Because to be honest with you, my history as a man is a history of being flawed. It's a history of me trying to fix myself, elevate myself, try to hide from stuff. A history of me being deeply and profoundly broken. Therefore, don't send me to me when you teach me the Bible. I am poisoned with self-love preferring me over God. And I'm so perverted I can twist the Bible any way I want. That's my history. Therefore, I need to be introduced to someone who was infinitely better than me. And who was able to deal with my brokenness. And that's what Mark does. He's telling the world as he writes, here is Jesus. Here is good news, world. He's God's son. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is moving progressively to the cross to show us the fundamental storyline of the Bible is the fundamental need of men and women. Each of these accounts record for us about Jesus, a real person who lived in a real time and a real place. And these events are the key to your history, personal, world history, global. Because in Jesus and only in Jesus, God has finally dealt with sin. And that's what I mean when I say we are prone to wander 
even when we read our Bibles, but we dare not wander. Right? This story is so much bigger than you've had a bad week, and the 12 obviously did too, and you know, they got out, and so will you. You like that? <laughs> bad week, the 12 did too, they got out, and so will you. Okay, fine. And if you had a bad week, I am deeply, deeply sorry. But if you want to think past all that, Mark says, okay, I am writing this because I want people to see God was in Christ not counting men's and women's sins against them. That God was in Christ, counting those sins against Christ. Reconciling men and women to himself. Now you go live in that truth, and you enjoy that truth. You frame your life in that truth, and you go tell that truth to others. Live in it, enjoy it, frame your life in it, and tell others about it. That's what Mark does. Three points. Number one, humility. Two, divinity. Three, ministry. Humility, verse 45. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get back into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So we ask ourselves, why does Jesus want everyone dismissed so quickly? It's the first question that jumped out of the text. Why so quickly? I mean, he's had a whole lot of success there. Big miracle, big crowds, 5,000 guys, ladies plus ladies and kids fed with, you know, enough food for one Hey, let's stay a while. We, we don't get these opportunities too long. Let's soak this in a little bit. And the 12, they hadn't really gotten that much rest. Now they can rest. So even if Jesus dismisses the crowds, okay, the 12 could have stayed, rested. Why so quickly? Well, first off, I want you to see that Jesus is very serious about the disciples leaving immediately because Mark tells us, verse 45, he made them get into the boat. The language, urgent necessity. Guys, enter the boat now. Go to the Seda now. So he's serious. But secondly, if you read the parallel account in John's Gospel, chapter 6, John tells us that at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, the people begin to say, hey, 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 this surely is the prophet of God. In other words, they put together what they knew about their Old Testament and what Jesus did and said, why don't we get him and let's make him a king. And John says, Jesus, knowing that the crowd's intent was to make him a king by force, withdrew himself. Because that's not God's way, right? So here we find the, the humility of Jesus where he chooses to protect the crowds and surely the disciples from themselves. Which is what good shepherds do. Protect sheep from themselves when they're tempted to go astray. They are tempted to go astray here. They're thinking completely wrong incredibly short-sighted. They're, they're thinking only personal terms. Okay, overthrow Rome, and then my life's going to get better, and things will get better. Life fixed now, things will get better now. But Jesus says, no, no, no. This goes way, way beyond now. Your way of thinking is so wrong. I'm not going to be king that way. Your king idea and mine are totally different. My way is humility. My way is suffering. My way is the cross. Death. And you know what? Here on earth, I don't fix everything. But the people then, like people now, couldn't see that. Because what happens is, we tend to think of religion as, okay, if you just pull yourself together and get really serious, then you would have victory over all those external things. All the things of life, temporal. And I want that kind of king, right? Family and finance and freedom and fun. Hey. But when we speak of Jesus as he actually is, 
by nature, we're like, oh, no, no, I don't want that kind of king. I don't want a king to rule over me. I don't want a king to tell me to carry my cross and follow him. I, I don't want a king that will control my sex life, my thought life, uh, my time, my plans, my dreams. And will you notice then in his humility with the people and the disciples that he saves them from all that silliness privately, right? Get out quick. He knew the intention of the crowd, but he doesn't go commando on them. He's simply, he's like a maitre d' and I'm not trying to be silly. Okay, we had a lovely dinner. Great. It's time to go. We're closing shop here. Good night. I love you. Go. And as they go out, verse 46, you'll notice Jesus goes up. He went up on a mountainside to pray, still under humility. So having asked myself, why the rush to have the disciples leave? Answer, the crowds wanted to make Jesus a king for the wrong reasons in the wrong way. I then said, what does the Son of God, the perfect one, what does he need to pray for? (laughs) He's divine. He's perfect. He's not a demigod. He's just dominated. You know, 5,000 people fed, men fed with... uh, value meal essentially why not have a little celebration between the father and son like we're number one you're still the one this is great high five fist pumps did you see that no he 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 decides to pray psalm 34 verses 15 and 17 the the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. So maybe Jesus prayed, Father, there is trouble here. These people want me to be king for the wrong reason, in the wrong way, and they need your help. And I'm pretty sure if the 12 get wind of this, they'll jump on that horse and try and ride it. Oh, Father, please, please help them. Humility fits the context perfectly. Think this through, please. To the degree that you and I find our personal prayer life and our corporate prayer life faltering, feeble, we have to look to Jesus for an example. If he finds a need to pray, then surely we must find a need to pray. J.I. Packer writing uh, in his commentary on Nehemiah about prayer, this is what he says, Our age spawns great thoughts about man, small thoughts about God, less need of prayer. In signs of inadequacy and weakness, many look to intellect, wealth as a course of stability and strength. Nehemiah, as did Christ, looked to prayer. Our pride hearts, proud hearts shrink from weakness, real or fancied in all its forms. So we embrace anything, anything which looks like strength. But prayer doesn't appear strong because prayer proper rejects all thoughts of self-sufficiency. As we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Think of it. Prayer proper is just like the gospel. We reject all thoughts of self-sufficiency, self-salvation. And we just cast ourselves on the mercy of God. That's number one, humility. Number two, divinity. See that verse 49? When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Now, you can't see it in English, but it's in the Greek. When Jesus was about to pass by them, he was saying, Ooh, ah, I'm a ghost. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Please tell me someone besides me did that. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one, but I did that all the time. Ooh, ah, I'm a ghost. 
<laughs> but you see the contrast here. Verse 47, Jesus is without the 12, <laughs> praying on a mountain. The 12 are without Jesus in a boat. Verse 48, they are straining at the oars. Jesus sees this. He's walking easily on the water. The disciples are in a boat pretty much going nowhere. Jesus is on his feet, headed to Bethsaida. And by the way, all that takes place, verse 48, at the fourth watch of the night, which begins around 3 a.m. and ends at 6 a.m. So the friend's own maxim is, the freaks come out at night. Is not entirely right, is it? Because Jesus was up at 3 a.m. in the morning. So you have an indication of just how long Jesus prayed when he was on the mountain. So in my mind, I picture Jesus whistling while he walked. And I picture the disciples singing the equivalent. You know that song, we're not going to take it? They're singing, we're not going to make it. (laughs) We're not going to make it anymore. Because the last time they were in something like this, Jesus was in the boat. This time Jesus is not in the boat. They're all by themselves. Okay, so Jesus is divinity, right? That's the point. He walks on water. I get that. This speaks to the nature of Christ. He is supernatural. He is a higher quality above nature. Jesus is not bound by nature. Jesus actually masters nature. Hence, he can walk on water. But what takes place beyond walking on the water is just as important and probably for some of us a better and maybe a needed picture of his divinity. In fact, it's two pictures. One is his sympathy in his divinity. The other is his self-awareness of his divinity. So verse 49, thinking about his sympathy. You see this if your Bible's open. Uh, they think Jesus is a ghost. In the Greek, it's phantom. So, so forgive me, but we find out a little of the theology of disciples. They do believe in spooks. They do, they do, they do believe in spooks. Verse 40, or 50, excuse me, they're terrified. And the Greek word here can mean shaking inside, shaking outside, or shaking both. Whatever was happening, there was some shaking going on. However, Jesus, verse 50, immediately, right, quick as a wink, there's no gap here. As soon as they saw that they were afraid, he speaks to them. This is beautiful. He knows all about them. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Think of that. So one of the things I thought about this week is a long time ago, I was seven, eight years old. I had been sick and I was kind of like quarantined in my room. And I was laying there in my room by myself because I'm under quarantine, but the door was open and my lovely sister Andrea, who's just the sweetest thing, for her whole life she's watched over me. It's early in the morning or pre-dawn and she just starts to walk down the hall and she wants to check on her little brother. Well, I didn't know that. So I see this figure there, and I'm like seven years old. I'm like, uh," and I scream out loud, right? And I literally say, it's a ghost. Andrea is like scared of everything, and so she says, it's a ghost. She runs to my bed, literally jumps on top of me, belly flops on top of me, squeezes me as hard as my, she can. I'm like, this is a ghost, this is a ghost. She's like, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And we're sitting there screaming. And so the lights come on, it's my dad, and I can promise you, when my dad heard and saw that mess, he did not say, take courage, children, it is I, don't be afraid. I mean, stuff was flying, words were flying, it was like, dad, really? I'm not scared of the ghost anymore, it's you. (laughs) Now, I want you to remember that they were in this predicament, not because they disobeyed Jesus, but because they obeyed Jesus. You see, that's good medicine to counter the affliction that says, as long as we're obedient, everything will be fine. 
As long as we're walking in obedience, everything will be fine, right? You hardly need to row. The boat kind of just goes on its own. But if you're disobedient, then you'll really be straining. See, that's an important lesson to learn because we get fed that crud all the time. There's a lady I read of at Christmas time, a popular preacher in other circles, and she said, God said, if you sow your seed money this year, wow, we, it is going to be awesome. But if you don't, you're going to be in big trouble. You're like, wow, really, really? Now you have to choose for yourself. You're sensible people, but I'm, I'm not going with the lady. I am going with the hymn writer, William Cowper. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Right? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, there, there hides a smiling face. And so it is when the wind is against them, when the hour is at its darkness, Jesus, having put these men in the boat, will show sympathy in his divinity and grant them his goodness. And even though he knows about their badness, verse 52, you see it? He, they don't understand the loaves. Their hearts were hard. The same term, by the way, used of the Pharisees and Mark earlier, and they were the enemies of Christ. Even though he knows all that's happening, it's like, guys, it's okay. It's okay, it's me. And the winds, verse 51, they cease. Don't you love that about Jesus? Jesus gets right down and he doesn't do what I'm tempted to do when people let me down, right? Jesus, jeepers, creepers, guys. I just fed 5,000 people with a can of tuna. What is wrong with you? you? You goofballs, right? We do that all the time. No, it's guys, take courage. Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm going to get you safely to your destiny. A little bit of a gospel ring there. Loved ones, that is divinity. That is the God of the Bible. That is how God deals with us in Christ. In Christ. That is his nature. Even though I'm aware of all your badness, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to take courage. Be of good cheer. It is I. Now maybe some of us here this morning, we need to take that personal. Because we always relate to God by what we do or not doing. And we never or hardly ever relate to God through what Jesus has done. Be of good cheer. It is I. Now hold that phrase just for a second in your head. It's important. But here in his divinity, Jesus shows his sympathy. Just pull back the lens to the story. It's been a long day and night for you guys. I put you in the boat there because I wanted to protect you from yourself. You'd like to make me king, but it's for the wrong reason, and it's in the wrong way. It doesn't involve a cross, which means, guys, you misunderstand me, and you probably misunderstand your sin, and that's why your heart is so hard. You do not know who I am fully, and therefore you do not know how much you desperately need me. Now, again, is that any of us here, right? You don't know who really Jesus is. You don't really understand the depth of your depravity. You're unprepared to deal with your depravity God's way. You think you can fix yourself, and therefore your heart is hard to God. There's nothing's ever right, God. You're just not good enough. Nothing's ever fine. God's not your fault, Father. It's like, God, you're always failing me. Now, is that any of us here? Do you see? There is in this divinity. Well, honestly, it makes me want to cry. There is so much sympathy. Now, self-awareness. 
You see, when Jesus said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid, it is I is translated ego, I me, I am he. And why that's so crucial is that when God revealed himself in the Old Testament, he used that same language in his account with Moses. This would be called like a theophany, if you would. Theos, God, phano, to show, manifest. In other words, the appearance of God in visible form in the Old Testament to show people his glory in some way, a burning bush, a a burning torch, theophanies. And what I think we should know is that when Mark writes at the end of verse 48, Jesus was about to pass them by, and then when he writes, Jesus says, verse 50, ego, I, me, it is I. He's showing us that Jesus completely understood what he was doing. His self-awareness and his divinity was fine. Right? On occasion, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus was a helpless victim who didn't understand his lot, and he kind of just fell into his trouble, the poor guy. No, no, he is living for this trouble. He's going to go to the cross for this trouble. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, after Moses asked God, show me your glory, show me your magnificence, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. See, that's what Jesus is doing here. Elijah, 1 King, uh, 1 King 19, uh, hiding in a cave, the Lord passed by. It was a theophany of his goodness and his glory. He is letting his goodness pass before the 12. And what does he say then? Be of good cheer. It's me, ego, I, me. I know who I am, and now you must know who I am. Final word, ministry. There's humility, there's divinity, ministry. So you see this, the fine, they finally anchor the boat, verse 53, and, and the whole thing just starts all over again, right? An endless sea of needs. Just breaks your heart. It's now, it was then. An endless sea, sea of needs. So many people recognizing Jesus. This is not the 12, this is the crowd. And they come from all over the place. And, and loved ones, don't you like the idea of so many people being helped? I mean, don't you like that? Don't you like how suffering is going to end that day for so many people? Families are going to be helped. The aged are going to be helped. Children are going to be helped all because of Jesus. Fathers are healed that day. And now they can go back to support their family. Moms, kids healed. Families restored. Guys, when this service is over, we're going to have one great party because of Jesus. The most desperate ailments. Just think, people may be suffering for years. But now, verse 48, immediately, it's gone. It's gone. Or think of this. Think of a person who might have just contracted some horrible disease the day before Jesus arrived. This is where my mind went. Okay? So the day before he arrives, you get it, and it's like you're terminal. Let me tell you something. I have no, I was like, I would be broken. Like, oh my, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then here comes Jesus the next day, and the thing is gone. Verse 45, immediately, verse 50, immediately take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Isn't that wonderful? But here's a far better thing. Loved ones, interchange physical sickness with spiritual sickness. You can, you know, because both have their origins in sin. 
Right? Sin brought death and disease into the world, physical sickness. Sin separated people from God, spiritual sickness. Sin brings uh, physical death. Sin brings spiritual death eternally. Verse 54, the people begin to recognize Jesus. This is like another sermon. Because you see, we'll never come to Jesus as Lord and Savior unless you recognize who he is. He's the Son of God. He has, the one, he has come to reconcile the world to himself. He has come to deal with God's problem. And God's problem is how he, a holy God, can justify sinners and allow them into his heaven. And the answer to that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. So they recognize Jesus for physical. We must recognize Jesus for our spiritual need. Then verse 55, they realize their need of Jesus. That's how it all starts, right? We come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of ourselves. It's a hard and wonderful place, the end of ourselves. For some of us, it's a journey. For some of us, it's instant. Finally, they believed. Verse 56, that Jesus can and will meet that need. And has, he does. He does. All over the place, people are being helped. That's the gospel, isn't it? You recognize your need. You can't fix yourself. Look at how many promises you can make. You can't fix yourself. You realize that only Jesus can meet that need. And then you believe. And he does. That's what Mark is saying. You see, think. The sick may not always be healed on this earth. I mean, we know that. But in Jesus Christ, the far worse sickness, sin, it's been atoned for. So Mark tells us, you, you live in that truth. You enjoy that truth. You frame your life in that truth. And for Jesus' sake, you go tell others of that truth. Because it's good news. It's good news. Don't be disappointed. The last thing I did before I went to bed, said my prayers, the last thing I did after I prayed is I listened to the song um, by The Emotions. And it has the chorus. You probably know it. Oh, oh, sorry. You, you got the best of my love. You know that song? And I started singing it this, this way. And then I was imagining Zephaniah 3.17 because God sings over us, that God was singing that to me this way, right? Oh, oh, you got the best of my love when you got my son. <laughs> Can't get any better than that. Listen to the first verse. Doesn't take much to make me happy and make me smile with glee. Never, never will I feel discouraged because our love is no mystery. Demonstrating love and affection that you give God so openly. I like the way you make me, she said, feel. I changed it to think. I like the way you make me think about you. And I want the whole world to see. And then it's, oh, oh you got the best of my love. And the Father, oh, oh, in Jesus Christ, you got the best of my love. We are so dissatisfied, so easy gospel hems me in, constrains me. It makes me sing, yeah, a song. Okay, I took this song and it's a secular song and I baptized it like Luther did with other songs in his day and I made it Christian. 
And I sang it before I went to bed. And actually, when I woke up, I sang it some more. I sang it some more. Oh, Father, you gave me the best of your love. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Verse 50, immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Father, many of us would readily admit that it doesn't take much to get us afraid. And we're deeply sorry for that. We should trust you. We should believe. Like the disciples were in the boat, we're amazed, and sometimes our hearts are hard. We need you to forgive us, God, because we'd like to get past that in the journey of our life. Maybe we'll say it like this, God, we'd like to get past that a whole lot more and believe, God, that you, you gave us the best of your love when you gave us your son and then to be able to live in that truth, enjoy that truth, offer that truth to others and let the good news be exactly that, good news. So God, help us to that end. And Father, as people are here and they would readily admit in their mind, I don't know this Jesus. I know a religious Jesus. I know a do better Jesus. I know a you're not doing good enough Jesus, but I don't know this Jesus. Then God, in your mighty power, would you just begin to turn hearts towards this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and begin to transform lives. God, we water, we plant, we're nothing. Only you can make things grow. So we would ask for your glory that you would let your goodness pass by this congregation today and in the course of this year. And you'd rescue people from sin again and again and again. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power and the presence and affection of the Holy Spirit be yours both now and forevermore. Amen.